Psalm 45. The title says it is the song of Korah, a song of love. Verse 1, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with the glory and thy majesty. And in majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a, is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia and out of the ivory places whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women and upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thy ear and forget also thy own people in thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. Free is thy Lord and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is wrought of gold. She shall be brought into the king in raiment of needlework, and the virgin shall companion, her companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy father shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. You may be seated. When Prince William and Kate Middleton got married, it was, you might remember, it was a pretty big deal. Um, for some reason, Americans like to follow the royal family. We fought a war to get out from underneath them, but we still like to follow uh, what they're doing. And uh, so it was a pretty big deal. Um, about a decade now, I guess. But the, the wedding was broadcast, I read, over 180 countries. Some people estimated that 162 million people watched it live um, on television or the internet. I got on YouTube this morning and looked, and the video that uh, streamed it right now has 40 million views. So if you just take that video alone, 40 million people have, have watched that wedding. People love a royal wedding. People love the, the, the pageantry of it, and they love the idea of a, a kingdom continuing on, and, and they see the, the money and the time and so forth it puts into it. People just are interested in that kind of thing. I also read that the ceremony costs somewhere around $20 million. That's a lot of money for, for a wedding, $20 million. Some newspapers estimated that the security for the wedding was around $30 million and that they spent $800,000 for the flowers. So that was a big, big deal. Lots of, uh, lots of time and money and effort went into that. And so that's one reason pe people like those royal weddings. That, that I can't even imagine a million dollars worth of flowers, but to, to be there among it and to see it and so forth. And then and you had all the people 
making the the bride up and and who knows what kind of team of people fixed her hair and uh, just in a regular wedding you got a team of people to help the bride but couldn't imagine a royal wedding and and all that goes into that very 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 small group of people in the history of the world would ever experience that just a handful of people really if you think about it, in world history, how many kings are there and how many royal weddings are there? So it's a very small group of people that would ever experience such a thing. And so it is a big deal. On top of that, it's a wedding which regular folk uh, is, is a happy time anyway. So our weddings, we don't have to spend $20 million for it to be a joyous occasion and a happy time. And... Uh, so people like weddings anyway, but you add on top of that the celebration and the pomp and the circumstance of all the things that go on with the king and queen is a pretty big deal. Well, I say all this because Psalm 45 is talking about a royal wedding. That's what it's about. The, the title says a, a song of loves, and that's what it's about. It is about a wedding. It's a love song about a wedding, and so... We find in verse number one, he said, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So Psalm 45 is a unique song in the Psalter because it talks about a wedding. It's a love song. And but it's more than that because it's talking about ultimately it's talking about the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings. That is the ultimate theme of this passage. Um, but there's a lot of different views about how this came, came to be about. I believe that it, that's the, the right way to look at it. Some people will think the right way to look at it is say, well, let's, let's think about who he was writing about. And so it was probably Solomon or maybe somebody else. But, but ultimately, I believe, as we'll see in just a second, that when you read this, we all think of Jesus. When you, when you read this, we all think about the Lord Jesus. And I believe um, what has happened, and I can't say for sure, but I think probably the psalmist was at a king's wedding. And he was there with everybody else. So it was for the, uh, the chief musician, so he might have been singing at the wedding or playing instruments or something at the wedding. So he's there at the wedding. He's there at the ceremony. And I think he probably looked around and saw... Everyone filled with joy and happiness at the occasion. Everyone dressed in their finest apparel. Happy smiles of the bride and the groom. The, the father of the, the bride who may have been a king himself. If it was Solomon, it had been Pharaoh's daughter. So he might have looked and saw, there's Pharaoh's family. And, and all their, all the people that would come with them and the dressed up and so forth. And you see uh, the Israelite side and, and all these people um, rejoicing over this good occasion. And so his heart was full of a good matter. His heart was full of something wonderful that had happened, something good and blessed, a wedding, a marriage, one of um, God's, um, God's institutions. From the very beginning, a, a marriage between man and woman, the, the union of a, of a man and woman in, in holy matrimony. He said, my heart is just full of a good matter. 
whenever the prince and the princess got married, I didn't watch it, but you couldn't hardly escape it. Everybody was talking about it. And I remember right after that, I preached on um, the bride of Christ. And why did I do that? Because everybody was talking about a royal wedding. And I started thinking about a royal wedding, and then I started thinking about King Jesus and what the Bible says about his royal wedding. And so my mind was just, it went from one royal wedding to another, just kind of naturally. And I'd say a lot of people preached on that during that time because their mind went from, well, here's a prince getting married to his bride. He'll one day be the king and so forth. And I said, well, there's going to, the, the king of kings has a bride. And it went from there. And I kind of think this is why it's happened. Since the scripture doesn't really tell us who this was, it doesn't tell us which king, doesn't tell us which bride, it just tells us about it, it must not be that important. And there wouldn't be any sense in trying to build a doctrine around the fact that this was Solomon or, or, or whatever. We just have to take what the biblical data gives us. It'd be in the text if it was needed. The, the, the fact of the matter is, a king got married. And he writes about this. But one thing I can say for sure is this is about Jesus. Hebrews 1.8 quotes Psalm 45.6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So Hebrews 1.8 quotes Psalm 45.6 and says this is about Jesus. Because the the writer of Hebrews was saying, Jesus is better than the angels. And he said, when did God ever say to one of the angels, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever? The author says, but he did say that about Jesus. The author of Hebrews said, God says, this passage is about Jesus. And that thy throne, O God, is speaking about the Son. And the scepter of his kingdom is the scepter of the Son, and his kingdom is forever and ever. So if we take the Bible and let the Bible interpret the Bible, you can't go wrong by letting the Scriptures interpret the Scripture, and you can't go wrong by saying that all of Scripture points to Jesus. I guess you could go wrong if you went the wrong direction, but that's the way Jesus says to to interpret the Scripture, that it's about him. And so if the New Testament tells us this verse is about Jesus, and the Old Testament doesn't even tell us which king it is, the safest bet and the best bet is to say this is a messianic psalm about the king of kings. And so I believe that the, the, the psalmist's heart was full of a good matter. What was that good matter? Well, first of all, it was a wedding. That's a good thing. That's a good matter to have your heart full of. And so carried along by the Holy Ghost, he picks up his pen and he meditates on what he had seen at that wedding and and wrote about what it would be. So one of the things his heart was full of was a good matter was marriage. Marriage is an honorable thing. That's a good thing to be married. Marriage is the the union of one man and one woman. That's how God designed it. That's how God instituted it. And that's a good thing. So he could just write, if he just wrote about marriage, that would be a good matter. So his heart was full of that. But the marriage of one of David's sons had far more significance and far more meaning than weddings do today. A royal wedding has a lot of significance. Like I said, 180 countries watched that marriage between uh, William and um, 
Kate Middleton. But my wedding, which was the best day of my life, wasn't even WSAZ. <laughs> I no, one, no one cared except for me and my family and Chris and her family. Yeah, it wasn't international news. Still a great, still a wonderful day, but but the the world wasn't involved in that because I was, you know, like they were there because he's a king, or will be a king. But add on to the top of this, David's son's marriage has more significance than any other royal wedding that ever has been, because God had made an eternal covenant with David, and that his throne would last forever and ever. In 2 Samuel chapter number 7, and verse 15, talking about, this is the, the, the God's message to David. He says, But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So David's house had a promise attached to it. And David's kingdom had a promise attached to it. That it would be established by God, set up by God, and firmly set in place. And this throne and this kingdom will never end. Why is that? Well, because from the seed of David, from the house of David, would come the Messiah. That it came first in the promise in the garden that through the seed of the woman, and then it was narrowed through the seed of Abraham, and then it was narrowed through the seed of Judah, then it was narrowed even more through the seed of David. So first, the seed of the woman, but then it was going to be from a descendant of Abraham, then a descendant of Judah, then a descendant of David, the king. And so the very first verse in the New Testament, the book of generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So when God's people saw one of David's children getting married, especially the one who would take the line, their minds, if they love God, their minds immediately came to the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Christ will come somewhere along through this union. This marriage then was more than just a, a regular marriage. It was more than just a, uh, a royal marriage even, but this, was, this ultimately would end in the birth of the Messiah. So naturally the psalmist, as he sought this, his heart was full of a good matter. Here's a marriage. Here's the marriage of royalty. Here's the marriage of one to whom the Messiah will, will someday come, whose line will come. This kingdom that will never end. This king, this throne that will be established forever. So it was, it, like I said, more than a happy occasion. The cel- it was a celebration of the continuation of the king of Israel, continuing the line looking for the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. So this is why his heart was so full. He took the occasion of a wedding 
And God, the Holy Spirit, said, now here's this wedding. I want you to think about this wedding. But as you think about this wedding, I want you to think, use this to, to go from there to think about Christ. Now, verse 1 introduces the song. Then verses 2 through 9 is about the king. Verses 10 through 15 is about the queen. And then we come back and close it all up again in verses 16 and 17 about the king again. Now, as I read that, you'll notice that there was a little bit of difference between what is written about the king and what was written about the queen. The king is praised all throughout the psalm about who he is. He is righteous. He is, he is glorious. He is, he is mighty. He is meek. He's full of grace. But when you get down to the second part of it, everything that is talked about the queen, first he tells her to listen to him, and he's going to instruct her, but then most of it is about what she, what she receives by marrying into the family of the king. So he's praised for who he is. She's praised for what she's receiving in the marriage and how other people are are bringing her gifts. And so it's all about the gifts and, and what she receives in this marriage. The, f- the first part of it is all about who the king is. So like I said, this is pointing us to Jesus Christ and saying, all praise be to Jesus and all blessing be to the bride for her connection to the king. This is one of the royal psalms. In book two, of the there's five books in the psalms. And book two starts in chapter, or the 42nd psalm, rather, and goes all the way to Psalm 72. And all but one of those psalms in this book, in this section, are about the king. You see all kinds of things about the king in this, in this group of psalms. Psalm 44, 47, and 68 say that God is the true king. That God is the king um, of Israel. So Psalm 44, 4, Thou art my king, O God. Um, Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord most high is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. Then you also find that in these sections that the Lord is our refuge. So that's a theme that you find over and over, that the Lord is the refuge of his people. For thou art the God of my strength. And so forth. In Psalm 43, 57, 59, 62. So in this section about the king, God is the true king. God protects. God provides. And so this book shows us that the people know that God has given them a king, but also know that the ultimate fulfillment of this is that the Messiah would come and to sit upon the throne of David. So they looked at these kings and they thought about Christ. They looked at what God had promised those kings, they thought about Christ. They looked how David or, or Solomon would provide and protect and keep as a king would, his, his nation. But they thought ultimately 
God is my strength. God is my protector. God is my king. And so whenever we look at Psalm 45, we take it with that same idea. They see, well, here's a royal wedding. God promised that these people, that this line will continue, but they think God is my king. And God loves his bride. So this psalm is about the king of kings and the bride he came to save. Ephesians 5.32 talks about um, the bride. and In Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, you read of that other royal wedding that, that at the marriage supper and then there you read of New Jerusalem. So you read about Christ and his church and Christ and his bride in the New Testament. So this is, this is ultimately what we're supposed to be thinking about. The glory of Christ and the love of his people. And this whole song is poetic. That's what songs are. They're, they're, they're poems. And there are passages that are descriptive about the king that explicitly tell us truths about God. For example, verse 6. We know that that's explicitly telling us the truth about God, that, that the, the throne of Christ is forever and ever. And it's a righteous scepter. That is a truth explicitly taught, uh, telling us. But not everything in this, this uh, verse is a prophecy. Some people have gone wrong by thinking that every verse in this psalm is a prophecy, and they try to connect every verse to be fulfilled somehow. And, and somehow verse 12 Talking about the daughter of Tyre giving a gift has to be fulfilled somehow in, in a church somewhere. Well, no, that is a, that is a poetic way of, of expressing the truth. Tyre, in Bible times, was a very powerful city. And they had a very powerful king. That was the seat of power of, of, the, of, of the Phoenician people. So when you talk about the daughter of Tyre, you're not just saying, well, here's a woman in some Phoenician city that's going to give somebody a gift. You know, that's a, just a small town in Lebanon now. It's all Tyre is. But back then, it was a powerful seat. It was a seat of power. And the daughter of Tyre is the uh, daughter of the queen. She's a queen. She's got a lot of power. In her. And, and so for the queen's daughter of another nation to give a gift shows that that not just regular people were looking towards this, but all people, all the, the kings of the earth, the rich and the powerful were looking at this, this wedding and honoring in it and, and looking at it from a perspective of, of glory. And so that's, that's what this means. It's not, so not every verse is a prophecy. Not every verse you take it and try to figure out how this connects in, in our day and time, but you take the whole of it and say, well, what does this picture draw for us? What are we thinking about here? Now let's take this picture as a whole and look forward. Especially about the, the bride. Now, remember I said that the first half of this is about the king, and it tells things about the king. And so we take those explicit passages and say, okay, this is what it's telling us about God. But when it gets to the queen, it's all a, po- a picture. And so we take the overall picture in that second half. So let's look at the, the glorious groom here, the glorious groom. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured in thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. 
So the psalmist looks, the groom's standing there all happy and 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 dressed to the nines and says, Thou art fairer than the children of men. There's a handsome looking fellow, he thought. Well, who who looks at the Lord Jesus and says he is fairer than the children of men? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us that people looked at him and didn't think much of him. There was nothing in him that man desired. He just looked like an ordinary guy. But to you and I, he is fairer than the children of men, is he not? To you and I, he is the fairest of ten thousands. To my soul, we, we look at the king and say, there is one who is lovely. There is one who is altogether lovely and, 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 and amazing and gracious. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. The Lord Jesus Christ comes and, and, and spoke to us. The word made flesh and speaks to us even today in his word. That, that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth by the Lord Jesus Christ. So our king is one who is fairer to our soul than, than any other man who speaks grace unto us, the grace of God and salvation. Um, and then verse number three through five, he talks about the power of this king. Gird up thy sword, sword or gird thy sword upon thy thigh, most mighty, with the glory and majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because truth and meekness and righteousness in thy hand are, shall teach thee terrible things. Thy arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies whereby the people fall under thee. So here is a mighty king. Well, first we get that, we, we think, well, here's a, a good looking fella full of grace. You think, well, here's a, 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 a soft man, a man of peace. Full of Truth and meekness and righteousness. All these things describe the Lord Jesus Christ. He was gentle and meek and lowly. But also notice, he is most mighty, most glorious. He carries the sword. And you ought to fear this king. His arrows are in the heart of his enemies. Well, there's, there's a uh, song for you. I don't know if anybody, the next wedding that we have here, maybe I don't think anybody would, would, would say, sing a song about the uh, arrows of the groom are in the heart of his enemies. <laughs> Might not be a good wedding song, but that is a good wedding song here. Because why? It's talking about the king. It's talking about him loving righteousness and defeating wickedness, defeating uh, the, the, the enemies of God. So this gives us a picture here. All right, so... This gives us a picture of who the king is. So we take this picture and what he's saying and we think about the whole of that idea. What is this? Well, here's one who is meek. Here's one who is righteous. He does everything right. Here's one who is mighty. And here's one that is against those things that are against God's truth. Who could be one like this except for the Lord Jesus who is full of grace and mercy, and truth, and meekness, who has power almighty, but, but controls that power in perfect righteousness and in perfect judgment. Those who love the king and see him as beauty, be, beautiful and lovely rejoice in him. But woe to be those who cross him, those who go against God and go against God's, God's word. 
because his arrows are sharp and his sword is mighty. Verse 6, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So we've already talked about that, that the author of Hebrews said, this is showing that it is Christ, the Messiah, is, is God. God said, thy throne, O God. Psalm 45, 6 says, thy throne, O God, it is God's throne. And Hebrews tells us that we ought to think about Jesus, that Jesus, God the Son, his throne is forever and ever. That Jesus is higher than man, because Jesus is even higher than the angels. That's the whole point of that section of Hebrews, that Jesus is higher than the angels. So this verse is actually talking about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever talk to a Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, this would be a good uh, verse to ask them about. This one and the corresponding one in, in Hebrews, that thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Who's he talking about? And if Jesus is an angel, then how is, then why is he higher than the angels? And, and in fact, Hebrews says, which angel did he ever say that to? The answer is none of them, because he is higher than the angels. So the throne here of the king, the psalmist is writing this, and he sees the throne of David, but his heart is lifted up higher and thinking about, well, it is the, this is God's throne. This, this, this line ends in King Jesus. So his heart is lifted up, looking to the Messiah. Verse 7, Thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jesus loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. That's not the God of, of most people today. Sadly, it's not the God of a lot of churches today. It's all church in Charleston had rainbow stuff all over their, their advertisements. Um, Come as you are was what their, their theme was, but what that really meant is we're not going to say anything about sin. You can come and sin however you want to. We won't say anything about it because we're not... We're not haters. We love everybody. Our king loves righteousness and hates wickedness. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. That's what the text says. Our God loves righteousness. And if you are wicked, then God doesn't say, I love your wickedness. He says, I hate wickedness. <laughs> The king of glory loves holiness. He loves righteousness. Thank God that grace is poured into his lips. Thank God that this king has come to die for his people, to pay for our sins, to pay for my wickedness, because I've committed wickedness. I've committed great wickedness. And so there I am under the, the wrath of God, am I not? Well, not unless the king pays for my sins, not unless the king washes away my wickedness and gives me his righteousness. And I have that righteousness. And so the righteousness of Christ, which he loves, I share in that righteousness because he's given it to me. And so I can look at this king and say he is fairer than the children of men. This king in all of his glory and all of his might who hates wickedness and hates unrighteousness came and walked among um, unrighteousness and walked among wickedness and allowed his enemies 
to treat him with dishonor and disrespect and allowed his enemies to, to, uh, to smite him and to mock him and even to kill him because he died for me. And he rose for my justification and one day he will bring ultimate judgment unto those who hate him. So when we look at the king, I don't look and say, yeah, Jesus hates those people over there. I look at him and say, he hates wickedness and he loves righteousness. I don't want to lie to you and lie about my king and say, well, my king doesn't care one way or another about your wickedness or one way or another about righteousness. But that's not true. That's why he is fairer than the children of men, because he loves righteousness and because he hates wickedness. But also because grace is poured into his lips. He is the anointed one. Anointed, that's where Messiah, Christ, anointed, that's, it's all the same thing. The anointed one is the Christ, is the Messiah. That's who he is. What a picture of the king. What a picture of the king. Verse 8 and 9, we see another picture. His garments smell of myrrh and aloes, and you got the ivory palaces and, and so forth. All these are pictures showing the glory of the king. We look at this, and it gives us a scene to think about. I think it'd be a mistake to try to figure out the, the typological meaning of aloe. You know, I, I don't think, I think you'd go too far if you started trying to, to make every word in this mean, have some typological meaning. We start going into the gold of Ophir and try to figure out why this gold is, has significance and so forth. You, you go too far, your imagination gets carried away with you. If the scripture doesn't tell us and doesn't give us any clue or insight into, into that typology, then, then we shouldn't go any further than that. But when the scripture does give us insight, then, then we can say, well, this scripture tells us, it gives insight here. So I think what we do is we take this as a whole and, and think of the picture. You have this glorious king coming out of the ivory palaces, clothed in glory and splendor. And everybody sees him and probably can, can smell the, the fragrances as, as he walks by. And just everything about him makes you turn your head and say, man, he, he, what a king. They're the king's daughters are around. There's, there's his mother and, and, and his sisters. And, and you have all this other royalty there around him. And his garments are, are more than any of us could ever afford, you think. And, and you just, just what, what, a, what a king. All eyes are upon him. This royal wedding is different than our weddings because... All eyes were on the king. And there's more praise, you know, our weddings, the, the bride, you know, the focus is on the bride and, and the, the groom is there lots of times just because he has to be. <laughs> you know, the all focus is on her. And he, he's just there as an afterthought just about. Um, just the way that, uh, that we do things. But it's not so here. All eyes are on the king. But the bride, she's a blessed bride. So we see a glorious groom, we see a blessed bride. 
like I said, we take this as poetic. You know, you see that the groom's part of it is all in the present tense. Thy throne, O God, thou lovest righteousness. Thy th but then when you get down to the king, it's all, she shall be. She shall be this, she shall be that. So that's interesting, that the psalmist speaks of the groom much differently in the way than he speaks about the bride. He speaks of the groom in the present, he speaks of the bride um, in the future tense in most of this, that he praises the king and he instructs the bride. Verse 10, hearken, O daughter, consider and incline thy ear, forget also thy own people in thy father's house. Hearken, listen to me. I'm going to instruct you here. Consider this, what I'm about to say. Pay close attention to it. Lean your ear in and, and listen to me. Give me your undivided attention, bride, and consider what I have to say. Looking at the pronouns, the, the bride here is directed, or the song is directed to the bride. He said, listen to me. Listen to me as I, as I speak to you. Because I'm going to tell you some glorious things. Well, first of all, he tells her to forget her own family. Well, what, what does he mean, forget thy own family? Well, what he's telling her is, you have now been joined to your husband. You're now united to your husband. And we don't say that a wife today has to forget her family. But what is he saying here? He's saying, you are now united to the king. And you are now joined to him. And your life is now united to your husband's life. Is that a bad thing? Is that a bad thing to be, to be brought into the king's family? Well, no, because the king shall greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. You'll be blessed. You'll be honored. You'll be, you'll be blessed beyond measure. What are you to do? We're well, to love him. You're to honor him. And so remember, we're, we're thinking this is pointing us to Jesus. So he's thinking, he looks at, let's say it was Solomon, Pharaoh's daughter, just for the sake of argument. What's he doing? He's saying, he's thinking about this, and he says, you know, she's leaving her country. She's leaving her dad, who's the king. But now she's going to come to a different country with a different king, a different uh, way of life. She's going to have to leave all that behind. She can't come if she's going to be a good wife. She can't come and bring all of her her old way of doing things and all these pagan way of doing things, she has to come and, and become the king's wife. So that's why it says you, got, you just got, you have to, you're coming to the king of Israel and your connection with him now is one of love. And now you have to live in this manner of love. You'll be blessed and people will know that you're blessed because you're the king's wife. This marriage is a picture, and it shows that through all of this, all this section here, you find that she is blessed, 
with all manners of gifts. She's blessed for being the king's wife. She's blessed with joy and happiness. So I believe what we're to do is to take the whole of this section and look at it as the picture. And what's it telling us? It's telling us that the king is, is glorious. And that the, those who are united to Christ are a people most blessed. Those who are united to Christ are the most happy and most blessed. Not because of who we are, but because of what we have in Christ. United to Christ, we're no longer under the law, but under our new husband, as Romans 6 tells us. The old way of, is dead. The old way of our father's house, of law, of judgment, of condemnation, that old way is gone. But under our new husband, under Christ, there's grace and there's peace and there's mercy. There is joy to those who are united to Christ. Ephesians 5 says it's a great mystery, but uh, marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. So we look at that and say those who, who are united to Christ ought to be members of, of the church because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be baptized and you're supposed to join the church. And, and, and the marriage is a mystery of Christ in his church. And those who are united to Christ are, are most happy and most blessed. But if you read this and think it yourself, in your glory, you've missed the point. We sang that song earlier today, um, Samuel Rutherford, uh, Sands of Time. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. The bride... No matter how finally she was adored, wasn't looking at her dress, and looking at her rings and so forth. Once she sees, sees the king, all eyes were on him. And you and I, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be looking at the crown that he gives us. We're not going to be looking at the robes that he gave us and just, oh, well, look how good I look at these things. No, we'll be looking at our dear bridegroom's face. We'll be looking at King Jesus. Because the Lamb gets all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And that's how this verse, this psalm ends up. Instead of the fathers, it would be the children. Instead of the old covenant, it's, it's the king. And the king, uh, instead of the, the fathers who rejected Christ, or even the fathers who loved Christ and looked forward to him, all focus will be upon him and his children, us, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth praises of him that's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It is Christ's name that will be remembered in all generations. It is Christ's name that the people will praise. The psalmist's heart was full of a, of a, a wonderful matter. What was that matter? Well, it was Jesus Christ. And what did he want to do with his heart overflowing with this good thing? His tongue is a pen of a ready writer. Well, he wanted to make the name of Christ to be remembered. He wanted to make the name of Christ to be praised. He wanted glory be to the king forever and ever. 
So as we consider this royal wedding this morning, and we think about our Savior and our King, look to His glory. Look to His grace. A lot of people fight about the bride and so forth, a lot of different opinions about the bride. But when we think about this psalm, all focuses on who? The bridegroom. I tell you, that's one distinguishing mark of a bride. She loves her husband, doesn't she? She loves her husband. And God's people, those united to Christ, God's people love their king. So let's look at him and glorify him this morning. And uh, praise be his name. Amen.